Well, babe, we did it. We wrote a book. Yeah, man, it's it's actually surreal to even think about uh, that we wrote a book, had a baby, got married, not necessarily in that order. <laughs> <laughs> but the book is now available yeah. for pre-order, and we're so excited to share it with you. Oh, so looking forward to getting this book into your hands, to be in dialogue and conversation with all of you as we continue to liberate love from old imprints and codependent dynamics that keep us small, stuck, and stagnant. Yeah, you know, no matter your relationship status, this book walks you through what shaped you, why do you do what you do in relationship. It dives deep into your relationship blueprint, attachment styles, and most importantly, which is different than every other book that's ever covered codependency in the past, we explore the role of the nervous system in that. And the book is called Liberated Love. Yeah. Release your codependent patterns and create the love you desire. Go to createthelove.com slash liberated love to order your copy now. That's createthelove.com slash liberated love and get that pre-order in and you'll be able to get a free download of a meditation we created and a workbook that goes along with it. Much love and appreciation for your support. Much love. Thank you. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Mark Gross Podcast. You are catching me on like the best of the best of the best days. Today's guest is like a dream guest that I've been waiting to get on the podcast. So I'm so excited that not only are you here, but they were here, which that's freaking news, right? Let's get pumped up. So if you're listening and it's your first time, you're like, whew, what a time to arrive. And if you're back, thanks for the support and the love. And you know, you're catching me probably in a bit. You're like, whoa, he's energetic. And I'm like, almost at the level of annoying maybe a bit over the edge, but I'm just so excited. You know, this woman's work has truly touched my life, changed my life, changed the way I relate. And, uh, you know, she's just incredible. And I feel so honored, so blessed that she came on my podcast. I mean, I got to tell you, I got to pinch myself a lot of the time. I started this podcast because people on Instagram were like, you should start a podcast. And I'm like, I mean, I like talking, and if there was a talking Olympics, I'd probably win. So I should have a podcast. That sounds like a good idea. I also like having opinions and sharing them and thoughts, and I like having brave dialogues about things that I'm scared to talk about. And, you know, to own a truth, I have probably minimized some of the feathers I want to ruffle in terms of some of the things I want to talk about. And I'm committed to not doing that. I'm going to have, I did this in my relationships and it's going to be a true mantra of how I always live my life, which is I have all the conversations I don't want to have because those are the ones that matter most. I think about relationship and the reason we're in relationship. I'm not in a relationship with Kylie because she makes me feel good all the time. I'm in a relationship with Kylie because she tells me the truth about who I am, how I'm showing up. And in that truth is the invitation to me being a better man, a better partner, a better human. And that's what all our relationships offer us is a window into that possibility. And it's hard to see them that way. And it's hard to see feedback as an invitation to our expansion, but it always, always is, which is different than criticism. Although criticism often has a grain of truth in it, our defensiveness doesn't allow us to hear it. And that's one, because 
they might not be framed or worded in a way that actually invites our openness and receptivity. And also because we might not have the self-worth to be able to hold something that invites us to grow. And, you know, I think a lot about, you know, from a workplace perspective to a romantic relational perspective, it is that we must be able to communicate with each other in a way that the truth is more important than being liked. That I, you know, I remember I had a old trainer when my old job would say, I'd rather you respect me than like me. And I never really understood that, but I recognized that you can be both. Don't get me wrong. You can be respected and liked, but you can still be respected and disliked because people can respect you for your willingness to tell the truth. And so I invite you all to step into that space of understanding within yourself of are you willing to step towards the truth, towards the brave exchange, you know, and, and really having hard conversations is what it's all about. And let's be honest, hard conversations are fucking hard, right? Like they're hard. And so when we say like, just have it, and we're like, uh, no, and let's not just have that conversation. It's hard to have that conversation. Instead, what I'm going to do is start reading a book or maybe watch Netflix or maybe go on a trip or maybe do something else to avoid having that conversation. And gosh, it is always through the bridge of that conversation that we find deeper intimacy or and reclaim who we are and draw a nice, beautiful circle around our self-worth when we do brave, courageous things. So think about what brave, courageous things you're being invited to do. It doesn't always have to be about communication. It can be about stepping towards a dream, a passion, or anything. But the world needs you in that expanded state. It needs you in the state of stepping towards the thing you're afraid of. And you might be afraid of what you need to become to do that because you've never been it, but you already are it. You already are that expanded self. You just don't know it because you haven't stepped into your costume, your superhero uniform. Instead, we often step on our own cape, don't we? I had to keep going with that metaphor. It was too good. <laughs> Without further ado, I've got to bring forward this brilliant, brilliant human. Dr. Harriet Lerner is on the podcast today. And you might know her from her spectacular writing. Her books are transformative. Her talks are everything. And her podcast episode she's done with other people, you know, all brilliant. Dance of Intimacy was one of my favorite first pieces of work that I explored of hers. Dance of Anger, oh my gosh, so good. And Why You Won't Apologize, absolutely brilliant. You know, her work is brilliant. Her work is transformative. And a few pieces of her work are more centered or written for the frame of women. If you are a man, you must read them too. Because I find when books are written for women, it offers me a window into the world of women. And anytime we can put on another set of glasses that are not our own, we see the world in a way that's not always comfortable, but we realize how we are participating in the dance of the way they see the world. And that has been true of the work that I continue to do in understanding different systems of oppression and, and also understanding sexism and how correlated and interrelated those are with uh, race. And so this is a beautiful conversation that I got to have, and I feel like I was fanboying, so excuse me. 
Dr. Harriet Lerner shares with us seven steps on how to find courage and use your voice. Whoa, right? I can't wait for you to hear this. Before we hop into the episode, one ask, wherever you listen to this, please subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Also, leave a five-star review and a written review. Make sure you share this episode if you love it. Take a picture, share that, tag me on Instagram, tag Dr. Harriet Lerner. I can't wait for you to listen to this. That's my only ask in exchange for all of the information that I share on here and all the work that I put into it. So without further ado, here is Dr. Harriet Lerner. Well, first off, thank you so much for saying yes to this. I think for everyone listening to the podcast, they know that I've been a longtime celebrator of you and your work and really wanting to push people towards it because I, I think in one, I, I really sense the the sort of like deep passion and love that you have for people to invite them to change and in a way and please correct me if I'm wrong. I, I feel like there's a bit of a fierceness to a, a lot of your writing in terms of there's like a passionate, like like a real assertive desire for us to listen. And at least I've gotten that that feeling from your work. Is that accurate in any way? Yes, that's accurate. And there's also a lot of humor in my work because I really believe that when you're talking about serious things, that it really helps to be able to have humor and to laugh. Yeah, you know, I sort of think like, what is the point of all of this if we can't laugh our way through it? You know, if we can't really enjoy sort of sometimes the ridiculous nature of what it means to be human and how we relate. And there is, you know, obviously part of being in relationship is that we experience pain and suffering and grief and loss. And to be able to also balance that out with joy. Right. And personal growth and change is really a self-loving task and and a light and it flourishes with humor and lightness. It doesn't flourish in an atmosphere of self-depreciation and terminal seriousness and self-blame. So yeah. We can all lighten up as we listen to this, because uh, we're going to probably be talking about some really difficult challenges. Yeah, when it comes to your work, you know, you have such a vast array, you know, from uh, Dance of Intimacy, Why You Won't Apologize, uh, Dance of Anger, um, and so many different pieces. And I'm curious, like, the throughout, what is sort of like one of the common themes of all of your work? or one of the condom, like underlying foundational pieces that we all need to learn? The thread that unites all of my work is my desire to help people to speak wisely and well with the most difficult people and in the most difficult circumstances. And through our words and our silences, to build a stronger self, to have a a larger platform of self-worth to stand on, and also at the same time to enhance our relationships. To not, well, or another way to put it is to have a self that's not at the expense of our relationships and to have relationships that are not at the expense of the self. So that's a tall order, if not 
the challenge of many <laughs> lifetimes. Yeah, when I think about that concept of maintaining the self and being in relationship, I feel like through my my own experience and also what I observe, it seems to be sort of our biological programming or conditioning to abandon self to maintain togetherness in some way. Right, right. And I, I think our error tendency might vary. Like for some of us, when we're on automatic pilot, we accommodate, we give in, we go along, we de-self ourselves, we abandon ourselves because we're so anxious about interrupting the predictable security and harmony of the relationship. And then there are others, the, we may have the opposite error tendency, and we may be very assertive and very outspoken and actually be unwittingly operating at the expense of the other person or the relationship. So there are many ways to get in trouble in our relationships. <laughs> It's like booby traps everywhere. Just <laughs> don't know where you're going to make the mistake. Right. And you know, and that I, I, I find like often we don't think about that we are doing something at the expense of the other person. I feel like in so much of our relational conversations, they seem almost so self-centered in a lot of ways, not in a bad way, but just more in a survival-based way, in a way of like, um, I need to get this out. I need to communicate. Do you mean that in a, in a sense of like, would bulldozing be like an example of something like that? Well, that's an example. I, I think if I were to pull out the central challenge in the conversation we're having now, that especially when we're anxious and we're all anxious, we're all swimming around in the anxious <laughs> suit now more than ever, but even before these particular anxious times. And it's very difficult to distinguish between real emotions, uh, which is the base, real feelings, which is the basis to make good decisions, and our pure anxiety-driven reactivity. Like we may think we're thinking, we think we're giving people what they need and deserve to hear when actually we are anxiously reacting. And I think that's very hard to sort out and very, very important. So maybe you wrote that, you woke up three in the morning and you wrote that very long confrontive email to your sister because you felt it was really important to get this out in the open and she really had to hear it. And you don't sort out what your intention is in sending it, and you don't get calm enough to sort out whether are you doing something brave or are you just throwing fuel on the fire and actually you're just sort of fight-flighted. And you're setting up a situation where you're yo-yoing back and forth between distance and blame. So I think it's really hard for all of us. It's a lifelong challenge to sort out what is truly courageous, a courageous definition of self. And when are we, you know, 
just anxiously reacting? It's a big question. Yeah, and it's such. it seems like it would be such a thing of l- continued learning of where is that line between is the conversation I'm having deepening the relationship or potentially fracturing it more? Right, right. So we have, you know, I, I love the the idea of, of what, you know, you had mentioned would be great to teach today of, of how to find courage and use your voice. And it's <laughs> in seven easy steps, right? right? Of course, seven easy steps. Absolutely. <laughs> so you were saying that, um, you know, when we were talking before about what to discuss on the podcast, that, that that is really the underlying thread of your work. And so would you be able to tell us more about that? Well, should we go through some of the seven steps? That would be fantastic. I'm sure everyone listening is like, I want to know how to do this. Okay, (laughs) I'll teach you. And I would also invite all of our listeners, as they listen to our conversation, to think about one thing from what we're saying, one of these seven things that they might do differently in a difficult relationship. One little courageous act of change, because even the smallest courageous act of change will make a big difference. And I encourage listeners to think about what they can do differently, because it's only after we can change our own behavior in a relationship that we actually can see that relationship and its possibilities. Mm-hmm. So so let's go. Mm. Okay, step number one. You ready? I'm ready. I'm excited. One is, and by the way, all of these will sound very simple, but when you're dealing with difficult people or a difficult situation, nothing is easy or simple. So number one is that we can say what we think about things that matter and that we can allow others to do the same. And this is easy if it's sort of a neutral topic. It's easy to define our differences. It's easy to say, well, I know that you like vanilla ice cream, but I prefer strawberry. (laughs) That is really not hard. (laughs) But if we're going to define a difference that we know is going to lead the other person to become reactive, that, you know, angry or defensive, or, you know, that it's going to disrupt the relationship, harmony, then it's very, it's very difficult. And it does take a lot of courage. And I mean, just to give an example, I remember, um, a situation where my mother was in an assisted living place. She was in her 80s, and we were having very tense, uncomfortable, sort of um, non-productive conversations about my father after it had been revealed that he had done some dishonorable things. And my mother's Mm -hmm. position was sort of the poor guy. He can't help himself. He had a difficult childhood. We need to forgive him. And I had sort of an opposite position, and the conversations were not productive. And I remember that point where I went to visit her in the assisted living place, 
with the intention to illustrate this number, point number one, to calmly and very clearly tell her how I saw the situation differently without trying to change or fix her. So I Mm. calmed myself down, very important, and I went to visit her. And I said, Mom, I'd like to talk with you about Dad. And I know that our conversations haven't been very productive about that. I know that I have been a big part of that, of it not being productive. I want to tell you how I see it. And I know that we see it differently. And it makes sense that we see it differently because you're his wife and I'm his daughter. But let me tell you how I see it. And then I did. I proceeded to tell her how I saw it differently. And I also asked her a little bit later, what's it like for you, mom? You know, what is it like that you and I have such different perspectives on dad? Now, any of you who think Mm. that this is simple, you haven't done it in your own family. (laughs) So that's number one. That's about defining the differences. You know, this is how I see it differently without needing to change or fix up the other person or convince them. That's number one. Any questions about that? (laughs) <laughs> well, first off, I have to say, I really like the idea of saying what I think. <laughs> right, that's right, right, right. <laughs> that's fantastic. That I could, you know, no problem. I can build the foundation on that. I think it's, you know, we're we're sort of in a climate where it feels like it feels challenging for two truths to coexist um, without feeling like our truth is being threatened by the existence of another. And I just think about that in the context of the current climate and culture and also relationally of, of like, really, isn't that the job of the container of a relationship is to hold two truths and it actually strengthen the container that they can hold them both, which as you said, sounds, Hey, great. Yeah. We'll just draw a circle around both these things. We'll both share. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know why I certainly am a recovering defender. I have, defensiveness uh, has a long line in my family tree. And when I started to work on not doing that anymore, I certainly felt more of a bridge that my self-worth wasn't on the line in the conversation. Yeah. Everything you're, you're saying is so important, especially in this political climate. And I would only add to it, Mark, that of course, we all secretly believe that we have the corner on the truth. Um, I believe that too. I believe the world would be a much better world if everyone thought and believed and behaved and voted the way I do. But it is a mark of emotional maturity to recognize that we see the world through such different filters and, you know, that there are multiple, multiple realities. So, yeah, it's a challenge. Just Well, just the acknowledgement of that is like, oh, sigh, you know, like, oh, yeah, that is true. Okay, so there can be multiple and I don't have to convince everyone of mine. And and you believing what you believe doesn't actually dismiss what I believe, which is a really that's so logical. 
but there's something like a deeper emotional commitment to our beliefs, which is interesting, like a a, a sort of uh, loyalty or something, you know? Right, right. And also, sometimes we have to speak and say, you know, Mark, I know that you believe that, what you just said, I know that you deeply believe it. It's very hard for me to hear that because I think that belief is so much at the expense of other person and other groups. You know, so this is something that you and I see differently. So being able to accept multiple realities doesn't mean that we're also saying, wow, you know, it's great. It's great that you think that. <laughs> so anyway, let's move on to number two. All right, number two. Number two. Let's do it. So number two, which sounds like the opposite, but of course it's equally true, is that having a courageous voice means that we can refrain from sharing our thoughts and feelings when appropriate. You know, I used to think that timing and tact were the opposite of honesty, but timing and tact are actually what make honesty possible with the most difficult people and the most difficult circumstances. Mm. So That's wisdom and maturity and having a courageous voice really rest on our ability to make wise decisions about how and when to say what to whom. And, you know, in families, in couples, what I see as a therapist is that in the name of truth-telling, in the name of authenticity, people bludgeon each other. And they approach a difficult issue in such an angry, intense, confrontive way that they're actually shutting down the lines of communication rather than widening the path for truth-telling. And I would also say part of number mm -hmm. two refraining, you know, getting more bite marks on your tongue, that part of that, <laughs> well, there, it has so many different manifestations. It may be that you try to get a grip on your overfunctioning, you bite your tongue rather than jumping in to give advice and be the expert on the other person. It also means often saying it shorter that you refrain mm. from over-talking. Because when we are anxious, this is my biggest problem, we tend to over-talk things and go on and on. And I have that problem. For example, if the other person hasn't gotten my brilliant wisdom after the 47th <laughs> time I made the point, I'll go for number 48, I've really learned not to do that, that if you <laughs> want to be heard, you say it shorter. And uh, mm. so that's part of refraining, too. So what are your thoughts about that, Mark, all of that? <laughs> well, one, I feel like I suffer from a similar ailment uh, of, <laughs> one, recovering from the overfunctioning, and two, really, like, if there was a word Olympics, I think I'd take gold you know, in the <laughs> conversational sense. And uh, when I feel like I'm trying to explain a point, if someone sits in silence, I often will want to continue to fill the space where really, you know, the most powerful thing in that moment would be to sit and allow the response to come. 
you know, and I, I can feel that sense of anxiety. Like even as I think about it, as you were sharing that there is an anxiety that comes up for me that I have to learn how to build a larger container for. Right, right. You know, part of um, my work as a therapist, if you get me as a therapist, you also get me as an editor. So that if someone <laughs> is writing this long letter, you know, to their difficult father or brother or best friend, uh, I'm they can run it by me if uh, they would like to, and I will edit it. And I will often, and they can either take, obviously, you know, that's for them to consider and see what makes sense to them and take take my editing or or leave it. But invariably, I am going to cut three pages down to less than <laughs> a paragraph. You know, less than a paragraph, things like, you know, three pages of confrontation may be pared down to something like, Dear Sue, I left our conversation feeling like a smaller person. I don't know if it was your intention to judge me, but I'm wondering, blah, blah, blah. I would love to hear your perspective on that, you know, from three pages to four sentences. <laughs> because if the person's intention is that they want to have the best chance of being heard, if their intention mm. is also to not lead to a cutoff in the relationship, but to lead to enough calm that two people can talk to each other or at least stay in the same room, boy, am I going to pare that down. Mm -hmm. You think about the volume of words being uh, inversely correlated to the ability to actually get them in the space to make the repair, to have the conversation. And Perfectly I said. Can I quote that, Mark? <laughs> yeah, of course. Okay. Uh, I've quoted you so many times. I'm like, yeah, sweet. Yeah, yeah, of course. Brilliantly said. That's really beautiful. I think that's some, is that a characteristic of overfunctioners in general? Yes, uh, especially with the advice giving and the I know best. And let me give you 10 reasons why what you're doing is, <laughs> is absolutely misguided. Yes. It's a function also, over-talking is a function of anxiety. Anxiety also pushes us to the extremes. So if you look at an anxious family, either the lines of communication are shut down and no one is really talking about the things that matter, or you see the opposite. People are over-talking, um, children are not being protected enough from adult anxieties, it's so you get you get either extreme. And when I talk about anxiety, I'm not just talking about the anxiety that we feel. We all operate with a huge amount of chronic underground anxiety and intensity. So, yeah. Well, I guess that probably leads to numero trois, number three. So numero trois or numero tres in Espanol Numero tres, because like I've forgotten all my French from college. My Spanish has knocked French out of my brain, <laughs> and I'm also trying to hang on to my English vocabulary. So here I go. <laughs> so number Eight. three is calm things down. 
Actually, better said, calm yourself down. You know, as a therapist, those of you who are therapists, therapists learn to be a calm presence in an anxious emotional field. That's what we, we learn to do that. And you can learn to do that in your family of origin or your, you know, it's just a lot more difficult. And it's important because we need to calm down in order to be able to think. No one thinks clearly in the midst of a tornado. And calm is contagious, just like intensity and reactivity is contagious. So if you're going to enter a difficult conversation, it really helps if you, it's essential that you can calm yourself. I should add to that, Mark, I mean, just to be realistic here, we can't be calm all of the time. <laughs> We're always going to be reactive some of the time. Our anxious brain, you know, will wake us up at three in the morning. Or I'd say for me, two or three hours after I fall asleep, my anxious brain will wake me up. And when the anxious brain wakes us up, it only does one of three things. We nurse past grievances. Like, how could my mother have said that? How could my ex have behaved that way? So we nurse past grievances, or we make to-do lists, or mm. we imagine future catastrophes. Really, I think that's mm. the only three things. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're going to be reactive, not just at three in the morning, but during the day. And all I would say is that when you feel that intensity and reactivity, that's not the time to send the email to your sister. That's not the time to confront your, your mother. So when you're feeling intense and reactive, remember that old adage in reverse, and you strike when the iron is cold. <laughs> right. Yeah, I've never heard it that way, right. but it makes sense. Or don't just do something, stand there, you know. Which which feels like probably for a lot of people uh, that there's probably an anxiety that then gets kicked up from the inactivity because they might be so conditioned to react, respond, react, respond. Right. And you may feel a sense of urgency, you know, like I just, I just, I'm, I'm going home and I am going to say this to my father no matter what. And it's a much mm -hmm. better position to be in if you can say to yourself, I'm going to go home and I will feel free to say this to my father if it feels right. You know, if it feels right, I am going to say this to my father. And it's also okay not to say it if, you know, every cell in my body, or I just feel, no, you know, this isn't the right time. In your experience with people, when they're, when someone brings calm to conversation that normally there's been a lot of 
chaos, you know, a lot of anxiety in the conversation, a lot of revved up nature, that when someone brings calm, I would imagine sometimes then if it's a change of behavior, the other person might be like, why are you so calm about this? Like, you're, do you not care? You know, that's starting to try to incite to get back the sort of nervous systems back up to a heightened response. Because you know, I think in some ways we don't trust calm if we're used to chaos. Well, that is a really interesting point. And I would add to that, that when you say something very difficult, that's really changing a pattern. Um, mm. It may be something as simple as um, a woman who says to her husband, you know, I know that a woman has been very, very accommodating. And she says to her husband, I know that you forbid me to go to that workshop, you know, and to get on a plane at this time. I've been giving it a lot of thought, and I realize that I need to make this decision for myself, and it's something that I really need to do. Well, what do you think he's going to say? Do you think he's going to say, oh, dear, I'm so glad that you're being so assertive, so self-directed. And uh, I, you know, I applaud you. You know, how wonderful. <laughs> Relationships don't work that way. If you make a change and you calmly say something that is really changing a pattern or threatening the status quo, it is normal that you're going to get a change back, counter move mm. reaction. You can't say that. You're going to kill your father if you do that. You know, there are a million that that's so selfish of you. I can't believe you're saying that. Or, oh, you're saying that so calmly. Maybe you don't give a shit, you know. And, mm -hmm. and the challenge, I'm so glad you're bringing this up, because the challenge is not in just the, you know, calming down or saying something with calm, clarity, kindness, and conviction. It's that when you get a counter move, that you can stay on track that you can stay on track. Mm. You don't become defensive. You don't counter-criticize. You may ask the person to explain more, but you don't get off track because you end up saying, I, I understand your feelings, and it's just something I've given a lot of thought to, and you know, I do plan to go to the workshop. And you may be prepared. Then you have to be prepared to let your partner, I don't know, sulk, Mm -hmm. He may, there may be a more significant counter move. He may say, well, if you do that, uh, I will not give you any money to buy a plane ticket to go home and see your parents. And then you have a lot to think about, about how money is managed in your marriage and, yeah. you know, who's in control of what. So... It's hard enough to do the first statement, but hanging in because it's a long-term project. Anyway, so you do need, though, to calm yourself down. And uh, John Kabat-Zinn has a nice image. He likens the mind to the ocean. And the surface of the ocean is always reactive. The waves are always going to be whipped around by weather. But there is a deeper calm that we can reach for underneath it. 
So that's mm. that's the goal. So some some Yoda stuff. I like that. Right. We're all gonna have to because to stay committed to the thing you began with and staying, you know, sort of locked in the foundation of uh, your intention when you we started the conversation or or whatever it may have been. That seems to be the way that you stay the course of the transformation of the relationship that, you know, is, as you said before, as, as you build a more solid self, the relationship really does get enhanced too. Exactly, Mark. And that does not mean that we rigidly cling, you know, to our eye position as if it's set <laughs> in stone and can't be modified by new learning mm. or what the other person you know, is saying, but yes, you know, it, what you're saying is true. I'm glad you haven't asked me the question people usually do right now, which is, no. <laughs> how do you what calm is... down? <laughs> like, how do you, how calm do, you down? do it? <laughs> <laughs> is that something we should tell people? I feel like... A, well, do you have I'm an like... answer? Do you have an answer for that? How do you calm down oh. when you're, you know, anxious and intense and... Well, one is the recognition that that I'm going to that I might be entering a highly uh, anxious state. Like a, a the conversation is going to bring up things for me, so just creating that expectation makes it so it doesn't hit me from nowhere. Mm -hmm. And then it's how do I manage it? For me, practices one having conversations has made me better at having conversations. So practice, practice, yeah, practice, practice, practice. practice number one, uh huh. And then I would, meditation has really allowed me to observe my reactivity. And what really shifted things for me was I would always remind myself in hard conversations. One, I used to avoid all hard conversations. So the first rule is that I would have all of them. And I did that. That was a commitment that I made in my late 20s. And the next part was that I was committed to my truth and to the integrity of the relationship over everything else. And that really made it so I held firm for the most part. I don't want to say I've done that dance perfectly. Um, but I've recognized even when conversations that we're talking about might not go as I planned, they still, when they get revisited and I might repair because I didn't handle it uh -huh. properly and I uh -huh. come back and say, sorry, we still get to the place we needed to get to. It just might not look the beautiful, perfect way I had originally planned. Like, I'm going to go in and say this, and they're going to say this, right, and then right. I'm gonna, everything's going to be perfect. What are some of the ways that you recommend? Well, my short answer when people say, how do you calm down? I have a three-word answer, which <laughs> is any way you can. Because, we, you know, we have so many ways of calming down, you know, conversation, mm -hmm. meditation, medication, being useful to others, you know, gardening, dancing, music, um, prayer, you name it. And what works for one person isn't necessarily helpful to another. So I think if people pay attention, they can remember what has helped them to calm down in the past. Uh, mm -hmm. But we can't be like that proverbial man who lies shivering in bed, but he's too tired to get up and get himself a blanket. You actually have to practice. Like if it's, me if it's meditation, you have to practice it. If it's gardening, you have to get out in your garden. So 
Yes. Okay, we've taught everyone how to calm down. <laughs> so everyone, you're calm. Yeah, you're now. calm and Perfect. forever it, it will be so. You're, yeah. you're welcome. Right. <laughs> okay, what is our next one, number four? Number four is warm things up, speak to the positive. You know, that is something we might not think about when we're thinking about having a courageous voice. We think about you know, speaking our truth and bringing up the hard stuff and creating boundaries, taking positions. And it's equally important to practice speaking to the positive and warming things up. No one, by the way, no one, whether they are seven or 70, will value your criticism if there's not a surrounding climate of love and respect, or at least respect, mm. at least respect. And, you know, in couples, it's interesting in couples because they will value criticism in the early stages of relationship, but men especially have found tolerate it less well over time. And what's really interesting, shifting to couples for a moment, is that when couples first get together, they know how to make each other feel valued and special, appreciated and chosen. And they may automatically pay attention to what they like in a person and comment mm -hmm. on that. The longer people are together, the longer, more enduring the relationship, that selective attention flips and we automatically pay attention to what we're critical about, and we voice mm. that. And it may be little things like, why did you put so much water in the pasta pod? And that's not the right knife to cut a tomato. What's <laughs> wrong with you? What's wrong with you are great four words to drive any conversation downhill. And we don't automatically comment on the small positive things. Mm. It flips. It's so interesting how uh, that's normal. The selective attention flips. And I teach people that God is in the details. So, you know, we know with children, if we're going to focus on the positive, it's not enough to say to a kid, I love you, I love you, you're so great, you're a super-duper kid, you're the best kid in the world. We have to be specific, like, I love the way you set the table, or you were really brave to tell your friend how you felt when you got excluded from the party. You know, we tell children the specifics, and we forget that adults need that too, especially in couples, people forget. So I always say God is in the details. And when I talk about using your voice to warm things up, think about the specifics like, wow, you know, I heard you on that phone call with your brother. And I love the way that you used humor, you know, to sort of lighten things up with him. You're so great at that. And it doesn't mean you're co that you know that you're codependent. If you want to hear this praise, we need, we all need affirmation and reminders that we're valued and and seen. So 
Number five, warming things up, means that you get intentional about speaking to the positive. I'm curious as to, you said that, well, one, I'm curious as to why men tolerate criticism less, less over time, like what you might think the, the pathology of that is. So that's the first question. That is not an easy question. It's really, it's a, it's a very, it's a very good question. And I think it's a combination of men's defensiveness. I mean, we're all wired mm -hmm. for defensiveness. And the fact that it does seem to me in couple relationships that when women get anxious, they may get more critical. That is definitely true in my marriage. You know, there's a greeting card, Mark. I don't know if you've ever seen it. And the greeting card says, if there's a man in a forest and there's no woman there to <laughs> criticize him, is he still a schmuck? <laughs> and what I've noticed about that card is that men think it's very funny and mm -hmm. they relate to it. And the women say, wait a minute, you know, if this guy is so allergic to criticism, why doesn't he do the things that he says he's supposed to do? Yes, I criticize mm -hmm. him, but why? Yes, I criticize him. But, you know, why, when he says he's going to text if he's going to be late, you know, why doesn't he text when he's going to be late? You know, I, I think there's a you know, probably as in most things, a circular interaction. It is true in my clinical work that men feel more overloaded by criticism, more flooded by criticism. And women report pain that their legitimate complaints are being ignored, that, that, they can't affect their husband's behavior by their legitimate complaints. So they're both true. And I would add to that, that men also tend, when they feel overly criticized, they tend to distance, to stonewall mm -hmm. and distance. Rather, you know, they decide their wife is just too difficult. You know, they don't, I don't want to get mm -hmm. into it. It's too difficult, you know. Rather than saying to their partner, I'm here to talk with you about anything. I'm your partner and I am here to talk with you about anything. But when you talk with me and it's sort of in this rat-a-tat-tat way and, and there, there's more than one criticism at a time, I feel, I feel flooded and I can't listen well. So this is what I would like you to do to help me to listen better. So, you know, men rather often, you know, rather than helping their partner to know how they will be able to better listen and what makes them feel flooded, they'll stonewall and withdraw. And that is not, that's not useful um, in a relationship. So, you know, the question you asked is really important and complicated and everyone has a role. I think as men, we just have a, we such a, we have such a low capacity for holding our own feelings, you know, and I think in general, uh, due to so many reasons. And I think then when we are invited or 
asked or <laughs> demanded to hold that depth of space, I think we just have such a an inability to do to do it because it's so foreign to us. And I think our self-worth is often so hung up in our partner feeling happy about us or taken care of by us that when that's untrue, I we just don't have the worth to hold. You know, I love in your conversation about why you won't apologize. You said like people who don't apologize don't have a solid foundation of self-worth. And I, right, and right. so many times. I mean, obviously, if we have a great big platform of self-worth and we get criticized about a behavior, we have that platform of self-worth to stand on and we can look out at our bad behavior and we can mm -hmm. see it as just one aspect of our big, complex, ever-changing self. If mm -hmm. we're standing on a small, rickety platform of self-worth and someone comes along and says, you know, why did you do this and it was stupid and what's wrong with you? And we're in danger of collapsing into shame. Uh, we're mm -hmm. just going to get very defensive. And actually, that brings us to number five. And number five is having an authentic, clear voice means that we can dial down our defensiveness and we can overcome our LDD. LDD, that is <laughs> listening deficit disorder. Uh, I have coined that phrase <laughs> LDD. <laughs> I wanted added to the DSM, you know, the manual, the diagnostic <laughs> manual of psychiatric right. disorders, because the listening deficit disorder is a it's a real disorder. Listening, how we listen shapes how our relationships go much more than how we talk, even though all of us are much more interested in improving our talking skills. So overcoming your LDD and dialing down the defensiveness, because we're all wired for defensiveness, it means that we pay attention to when we're listening defensively, which we all do. All someone else has to say is, you know, Mark, uh, we have to talk. We have to talk. <laughs> I'm starting <laughs> or already. Mark, to I, need, I need to tell evidence. you something that's really bothering me. Um, so we listen defensively. And when we listen defensively, we listen, we actually pay attention to this next time someone is going to criticize you. We listen for the inaccuracies, the exaggerations, and the distortions that are likely to be there. We listen for the part that we don't agree with, that we can correct. I'm good at this. Me too. This I'm good, good at this. We all yeah. are. So the challenge... I'm a data collector. <laughs> the challenge is to enter that difficult conversation with the intention that you will listen only to understand. You'll listen only mm. to try to get the essence of what that critical person wants you to get. And you apologize for that piece first. 
And you can save your differences for another conversation. You know, we don't need to do everything in one conversation. So you might have another conversation after you've really listened and really validated that part, even if it's only 2%, you validate that part you can get. You might have another conversation where you go back and say, you know, I was thinking about what you told me, and I agree that my behavior at the party was pretty terrible and I was really ignoring you. I don't agree with I don't agree with one part, and let me tell you what I see differently. I don't, I don't agree that at the party that I was responsible for your over-drinking because I take responsibility for my behavior, but I do not take responsibility for your over-drinking in response to it, and that is something we see differently. So non-defensive listening doesn't mean that you only listen and that you never share how you see it differently, back to number one, Mm -hmm. but that there's an order to that. Mm. That seems like a tall task, a good one, of course. When I think about defensiveness and how we're so quick to want to like protect our self-worth, protect the flaws we've just been pointed out or or whatever we might take them as. LDD, I like that term. I've certainly right. suffered from it. <laughs> and I think of defensiveness as like in my experience of my own defensiveness, it immediately sort of breaks the, like if someone came with a positive intention and I think, you know, whenever anyone's telling you how you could be better, it really is a positive intention when they're telling you what they need it really is a positive intention to to deepen the relationship or make it better. And I think about defensiveness where I was so fragile in myself that I couldn't even hear it. And then the relationship, the intimacy never deepened. And when I finally learned, I remember reading The Cure, the antidote for defensiveness from the Gottman's work, which was to say, I can see some truth in what you're saying. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And when I first said that, it felt like I was eating my own shoe. Right. I was like, ugh. (laughs) (laughs) Uh But I see how that validation that it just continues, like everything you're saying here, I'm just like, wow, like this all just keeps deepening the relationship. That's the invitation. It does. It both builds one's platform of self-worth and it also, because you're being your best self. And it also strengthens the relationship, right? What do you do with the energy that normally went into defending? Because I would imagine that energy is like a tender part of us or like a wounded part of us that's like, but well, who am I if I'm not standing up for mice? You know what I mean? And we do need to stand up for ourselves, mm-hmm. but there's a difference between responding mm-hmm. defensively and and standing up for yourself. And defensiveness, it's it's very important to understand that defensiveness is absolutely normal and universal. We are wired for defensiveness, and especially in the face of criticism and unjust criticism and exaggerated criticism and distorted criticism. We're wired for defensiveness. So again, it's part of that uh, 
number four to, no, not number four, number three was to calm ourselves down so that we can better listen. Because when we're feeling defensive, we also, our brain is sort of on fire. We have an overheated nervous system. <laughs> it's gone. And, and yeah. all of that. So The brain left the building right. when I'm defensive. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Goodbye, brain. I'll just be a lizard. Exactly. I'll just operate out of my limbic system. Is that is that it? Yeah, right. Right. It's the limbic system. I remember I could never yeah, right. I could never remember what the limbic system did. And then about a decade or so ago, uh Bessel van der Kolk came to the Menninger Foundation where I was working. I think actually it was about two decades ago and he gave us this mnemonic device that I've never forgotten for remembering what the limbic system does. And he said that the limbic system is in charge of the four Fs, fighting, fleeing, feeding, and reproduction. So, <laughs> so that's, I see why that's memorable. So, yeah, right. So <laughs> moving funny. on to number six, yeah. respecting differences, having a courageous voice uh, requires respecting differences. And you and I talked about this earlier, so we don't really need to go into it too much. But I would say again that relationships require a profound respect for differences, that we all see the world through different filters, the filter of our gender, our birth order, our race, our culture, our family of origin, our unique strands of DNA, um, all of it. And that differences don't necessarily mean that one person is right and one person is wrong. I have a great cartoon in my consulting room, Mark, that my friend, mm -hmm. uh, I credit my friend Jennifer Berman, a humorist who made this cartoon. And it shows a dog and a cat in bed together. And the dog is looking morose and reading a book called Dogs Who Love Too Much. And, <laughs> and the cat is saying, I'm not distancing. I'm a cat, damn it. <laughs> and it's a great cartoon, and, and it helps couples lighten up about differences. That, that We're all different. We have different ways of getting comfortable. So maybe her way of getting comfortable is, you know, she wants to go into therapy and process it. She wants to move right to the center of a difficult conversation, talk about it. Maybe her partner's way, you know, is very different. Maybe her partner wants to go sit out on the tractor and, and be alone and get space and is more do-it-yourselfer and that it's okay, you know, to have different ways of managing anxiety and getting comfortable. Anything you'd like to add to that? No, I mean, I think that's one of the things I hear most in my work is how do I get that person to do that thing? Or how do I get that person to change or to hear me or to, you know, as you mentioned earlier that, you know, when we don't follow through on our word and it's like, how do I get them to? And I know that's probably a podcast episode all in of itself, but sometimes that can be 
uh, fought for as a, a difference. Well, I'm just different. I don't want to go to therapy. I don't want to do this. Exactly. Exactly. And sometimes we need to really respect that that is not a therapy person. And we say, okay, you're very clear that you don't want to, you know, go into therapy. So what's your plan? Because I need mm. you to do something, you know, wh whatever the issue is about your over drinking, about the level of anxiety that, you know, seems to me to be constant and we're both suffering. If it's not therapy, you know, let's talk about, you know, what, how you would see the next step. Allow them to function for themselves. Right. In other words, you might be flexible about, you know, that therapy is not for them. Therapy is not for everyone. That doesn't mean you have to be flexible and sit like a bump on a log if your partner is crashing and burning, uh, that you can take a do-nothing position, which actually brings us to number seven, to our last one which is really mm -hmm. a hard one because it's about having a bottom line position. Having a voice means mm -hmm. having, some people would use the word boundaries. And I like to think in terms of having a bottom line position because it's a, I know more clearly how to, how to define that. And it goes naturally after we talk about respecting differences because you know, we can respect differences in a way that that slides into being overly accommodating. You know, of course he yells and screams, but that's part of his culture. You know, that's a difference. Mm. Or we end up making excuses for the other person. Like, he can't vacuum the rug. His penis will get in the way. I have to do that. Well, that's a little extreme, but women do at least, you know, especially when I was, you know, my 20s and 30s, really making excuses on the basis of gender. And, you know, it reminds me of a great cartoon in The New Yorker where it shows a woman seated in a witness box in a courtroom and she's saying, I know he cheated on me because of his childhood abuse, but I shot him because of mine. <laughs> and I love that cartoon because compassion, understanding where someone's coming from, respecting differences, doesn't mean that we have an anything goes policy. Because if mm. you have an anything goes policy, um, things will go downhill. You know, part of it is clarifying the limits of what you can and can't do. This historically has been really hard for women because, again, in my generation, I'm 75, and when I was growing up and in my 20s and 30s, women learned to feel guilty if they were anything less than an emotional service station to others. So there were all these assertiveness courses, like just say no, learn to say no, but it's much more complicated than just mm -hmm. say no. But I would say, I would define having a bottom line position. 
is your bottom line. It's the place where your core values, priorities, and beliefs are not negotiable under relationship pressures. And a bottom line position, it's not a threat that you throw out in anger, like do this or, you know, I'm leaving. A bottom line position evolves from a deeply felt in the body position of what one feels entitled to and the limits of one's tolerance. And there's no one right bottom line for all relationships, but if there's no bottom line, if the bar is set too low, the relationship will spiral downward. So a bottom line can be about a very serious thing, uh, like whether you're going to end a marriage, like, for example, the wife who I saw a very long time ago in therapy who her husband was diagnosed with sex addiction, and she, for a long time, saw her goal and her job to learn everything about sex addiction and to, you know, be very empathic about his addiction. And she reached a point, and this is an example of coming to a bottom line, where something shifted in her and she went to him and she said, you know, you can call it sex addiction or you can call it sauerkraut, but I can't live this way because I am in too much pain. So if mm. you have one more affair, whether it's an emotional affair or physical affair, I don't care if that's caused by, you know, testosterone uh, the fact your dad abuse you, the moon or stars or grace, that I need to tell you very clearly that I simply won't be able to stay in this marriage. So a bottom line can be about something very serious, but really it's a daily thing. It can be about something very quotidian, very ordinary. And a good example of that, for example, in my own marriage that just came to me, about a bottom line, about something <laughs> that I would see is very trivial, is that Steve and I, we had a contract. Like we, you know, he would clean up this many, do the dishes this many evenings after dinner, and I would do them the others. And I would do them on my nights to do them, except for the pots and pans, because I have a thing, like I don't like to do pots. <laughs> so I would leave them in the sink and they were all piling up. And, you know, first he spoke to me about it and he said, do the pots and pans. And then he, you know, sort of took the conversation to another level and said, you really have to do the pots and pans. Like I can't get in the sink. Then, though, I believe it was a Friday night and I really wanted to go out to the movies and I wanted to go out with him. So I said, let's go to this movie. And he said, I'm not going to the movie. I'm not going anywhere. I'm going downstairs to my studio to play some music until you do all those pots and pans. And he didn't 
have to say this as a big threat. You know, he didn't have to put his arms, you know, cross his arms in front of his chest and, you know, speak in heavy, <laughs> gruff tones. He said, no business as usual until you like do this pots and pans. And the reason it was a bottom line position is that I knew then, because I know Steve, that he really meant it. Mm -hmm. uh, a bottom line position has a congruence. It's not like your words say one thing, but your behavior says another. I knew that there would be no business as usual until I did the pots and pants. <laughs> and so, because I really wanted to go to the movies with him, I did the pots and pants. Plus, of course, that I'm a fair person and I knew that that was fair. But so a bottom line position mm. is so crucial and it's so hard. You know, it can be so complicated in marriage or with kids. And you know, to know what your bottom line is and to be able to hold to it. And again, if we don't have a bottom line position, if we have an anything goes policy, if our words keep saying one thing, I can't live with this, but our behavior says another. Like we say, for example, I cannot be in a conversation if you're being rude and demeaning to me. But then we continue in the conversation rather mm -hmm. than saying, I'm leaving and you leave and get back to me, get back to me when you can open this conversation with, with respect rather than treating me like a big screw up. So a bottom line position, again, it's a place where our core values, priorities and beliefs are not negotiable under relationship pressures. It's a place that uh, is not an angry, reactive position, but a deep sense of what we feel entitled to and, you know, the limit we're not going to cross. And again, it's not rigid. It's not that it can never change. I think we're, we're ending on the hardest. Well, they're all mm -hmm. hard. They're all hard. <laughs> <laughs> it's all hard. Yeah, this... I agree. And this one is so foundational in so many ways. It is a foundation, a platform, because you know you're not going below it. So you know you won't allow yourself to lower. And as soon as you go below it, you're almost like metaphorically under the earth. You know, you're starting to be buried because you're when you have to compromise your values, your beliefs and your priorities, then you're in a state of abandonment of self. You don't feel safe. You don't feel protected. And I often say like there's there's a difference between compassion and tolerance, as you were saying earlier, like you could be compassionate about why someone does something, but it doesn't mean you need to tolerate it. And right. this one is so this is where I find that we finally meet our values. You know, when we, I think we're often so many people are conditioned to prioritize the connection over that connection to self, that respect for self. And this is sort of a, a zone where we can reclaim ourselves. It's it really all the things you're talking about are such a beautiful opportunity to reclaim oneself. Right. And I would add to what I said, and I would add to what you said mm -hmm. that there is a balance 
between being flexible and accommodating for a partner or a family member and being able to be really firm and clear. Like one of the things I really value about my husband, Steve, is that he can be very flexible and accommodating, maybe 87% of the time or more. <laughs> but when something matters to him, you know, even if it's the pots and pans, he is very crystal clear. He has a very, very clear, non-negotiable position. And there was a poster, I just thought, Mark, of a poster that was on, you know, these posters on our kindergarten wall. Mm-hmm. And there was one that said, stand like an oak, bend like grass. And bend like grass is very important, too, because flexibility often trumps sheer strength. And, oh, there was something else on the kindergarten wall that said, um, in praise of flexibility, it said, the wind breaks the mighty oak but only bends the fragile blade of grass. So I think that the more we have this solid platform of self-worth, the more, you know, we can be flexible and accommodating and say, you know, this means so much more to my partner than it does to me. And, you know, I'll, I'll go with that. And yet, though, you know, when we need to set a bottom line that we can stand like an oak. And what a challenge. What challenges we've laid out. My gosh. Yeah, I mean, seven easy steps for everyone to follow, (laughs) and they've got it. I need to just say thank you so much for imparting your wisdom upon us and sharing your experiences and all the beautiful work you've brought together throughout your lifetime. And I'm just really grateful that you said yes to this. And I'm sure everyone listening is equally as excited that they got to hear you. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for inviting me and for persisting in inviting (laughs) me. Actually, there is something I'd like to say, because I wanted to write down something that would sum up about an authentic voice. We all strive to have an authentic voice. No one wants to hide out in any relationship where we can't be real. No one has ever come to me as a therapist and said, you know, Dr. Lerner, I want you to help me to be more of a big phony. and I want to be able to hide out in a corner and, you know, not be able to speak my own truths. And sometimes there is a gap between what we say and what we really feel. This is not necessarily a problem. Sharing true feelings, while essential in certain circumstances, is highly overrated as a principle to live by. But sometimes Mm -hmm. there is a gap between what we say and what we truly hope to accomplish in a relationship, or a gap between what we say and the sort of person we hope to become, or a gap between what we say and a deeply held value, belief, and principle. And that's a problem. 
Mm -hmm. That is an immense one. The gap between what we say and what we say and who we are and what we value and what matters to us. So anyway, Mark, thank you. It's been great. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode. If this episode resonated with you, one of the best ways to support the show is to go subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any more. Leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to it, or share the episode with your community on Instagram or whatever social place you like to hang out. This helps get it into more people's ears, and I'm so grateful for your support, always. Thanks again for tuning in. Much love.